from Green Biz Group. Welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at Green Biz headquarters at 350 Frank Ogawa Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. On this week's edition, Apple helps suppliers dial in to clean energy. McKinsey on the future of urban mobility. We'll meet Hawaii's chief resilience officer and a conversation with the retiring founder of Conservation International. Nature's taking its course this week on 350. This episode is sponsored by NRG, where the best energy approach is the right energy approach. As a nation's most diverse wholesale and retail energy generator, NRG is uniquely suited to guide customers to the solution best suited for them. For more information, please visit nrg.com slash greenbiz. It's June 30th, 2017. We're exactly halfway through the year. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. I'm Joel McCower, and with me is Green Biz senior writer Lauren Hepler. Hello, Lauren. Aloha. How, how are you recovering from Hawaii? I'm fine. We can stop with the aloha thing now, I think. Uh, <laughs> no, I always <laughs> am a proponent of aloha. <laughs> I'm feeling a little aloha and mahaloed out, but uh, um, so it goes. No, it was uh, great. I mean, we had, uh, you know, some, some people, first of all, are still not even back from Hawaii. It's been almost a week. It's been a week. And, um, and uh, some folks have made it trip out of it and are dribbling in uh, these days or over the weekend. But uh, I have to say that the afterglow of Verge Hawaii was in some ways as good or better than anything. And and, and it was just a good event. Uh, first of all, it was probably the most uh, perfectly executed event that we've ever done. As you know, we have this great team that just comes together for these events and performs and does what needs to be done and never squabbling, never complaining and actually doing it with a lot of fun. And they really stepped up this time. So there was that. And, you know, we put together a good program, but and, and it was reflected in a lot of the comments we got in terms of appreciation by people, both from the islands and not around the kind of topics and the kind of sensitivities that we brought to the table. So it was it was a good week overall. For sure. I, I, there's so many threads that were sort of mentioned that I think we'll, there will be lots and lots of follow-up to do in the coming months. Uh, but I actually had a, a different sort of field trip this week. I was down south of Silicon Valley in a little town near the central coast of California called Scotts Valley, uh, where Zero Motorcycles is based. Have you heard of them, Joel? It's it's called Zero. I guess I haven't. Yeah, it's called Zero Motorcycles because they are zero emissions. They're electric motorcycles. And I was kind of like, okay, are we talking like, I've seen these scooters, you know, where you're sort of going at low speed. The idea is it's part of this whole sort of urban transportation shift that we're talking about. Like, how do you get more creative with uh, smaller spaces, more people? But in this instance, they're really cool because these bikes are dual use. So you can commute on them, but then you can also go off-roading with them. So I, I may have to uh, consider uh, switching my mode of transportation. So I take it you did the test drive. I did a very brief test drive. I did not. I do not have the proper licensing, I must confess. So that is one logistical hurdle. What do you need? Do you need a motorcycle license? I don't really know. Yeah, you do. These things go up to 85 miles an hour. So <laughs> you have to know what you're doing to, to ride them. Uh, but 
but they're really cool. And I know I, we were just talking offline too. There's obviously so much going on with electric bikes. It's again, we're going to talk about it in a minute, but this space is a little hard to keep up with and that there's so many players entering the space, but just a lot happening in transportation. Yeah. And at the other end of Silicon Valley from Scott's Valley is San Francisco. And just this week on Wednesday, uh, San Francisco put into uh, on the streets, a hundred neon red e-bikes, electric bikes from a company called Jump. Actually, the company is called Social Bicycles. They're based in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, but I guess the bike is called Jump. And it's a, it's a bike sharing e-bike uh, system where it's a you know, a dollar for every 15 minutes, or I guess $4 an hour. And um, pretty interesting. Uh, the reporter who wrote about this for the San Francisco Chronicle, Kathleen Pender, said she took it on the test drive in, in hilly San Francisco. And it was one one hill. There was a 21% grade, a pretty steep uh, hill. Not atypical for parts of San Francisco that she said took a little sweat in traversing. But um, overall, it's it's a great way to get around. Yeah, well, that's good for us to get all revved up. So let's jump right into the week in review. So let's stick with the topic of mobility, Lauren. That's kind of your beat anyway. And uh, you wrote about a, a new study by McKinsey on the future of urban mobility. What's going on there? Yeah, so the big consultancy, McKinsey, took a look at this, again, sort of frenzied space of mobility tech. So we're talking about self-driving cars, electric cars, ride-sharing apps like Uber and Lyft. And the purpose of this report, which was titled The Futures of Mobility, How Cities Can Benefit, was really looking at some of the key factors that are going to determine how individual cities benefit or potentially in some ways lose out as a result of all the tech innovation happening in transportation. And I thought it was smart because a lot of times you get these like very grandiose claims. In this case, the big number attached to the report is that cities could save up to $600 billion cumulatively in 50 large cities um, by reducing congestion, by reducing emissions, and uh, streamlining their transportation systems. But I thought it was smart that they very clearly acknowledge that this is going to depend if you're a dense developing city, if it's a car-centric city with higher income and a less dense population. So there's some cool graphics that we'll, we'll definitely link to in the show notes for this week. So what are some of the ways? You said there were four specific ways that uh, cities can uh, increase or decrease costs or increase uh, mobility? Yeah, so really what they were saying is that cities will have to focus on their policy and regulatory frameworks in these four key areas. And one is how you adapt public transit. This is a really timely space because just last last week, Lyft came out with a new proposal for what they're calling Lyft Shuttle, but what sounds a lot like sort of a newfangled bus system where you would be using riders um, who sort of come together through the app to meet at a designated spot and then travel in a, a shuttle bus, not quite the size of a public bus, but it raises a lot of questions about if cities are going to start to subsidize some of these alternative models, if we're going to have competing public and private systems, that's something cities are definitely going to have to figure out. Um, but another interesting question, especially from sort of the environmental or thinking about the built environment perspective, is sort of this idea of what's going to happen with land potentially available for public use. There's been some really interesting sort of futuristic articles on what would cities look like if we totally get rid of parking. And McKinsey is very deliberate in this report to say that's really going to depend 
on how rapidly people uptake technologies like self-driving cars. Um, so we, we maybe shouldn't be planning on knocking down all parking garages and turning them into parks immediately, but a question that is definitely there to consider in the years ahead. Um, finally, just at a couple other quick notes, tax revenue is going to be huge. What happens if gas taxes continue their, their steep fall off as people transition to EVs? And how do you think about roads? Um, sort of related to these questions of infrastructure. Do we need a pickup lane for self-driving cars? Um, just things that uh, you're starting to hear talked about. I know in, in Europe, some of these things have, have come up at European Union meetings, but it will be interesting to see how they translate to individual cities in the U.S. and abroad. Well, we're seeing some of that here in Oakland. Um, we're, uh, there's been a lot of streets, a lot of uh, major thoroughfares in the central part of the city and, and also in some of the uh, outlying areas that uh, used to be two lane roads and now it's one lane with a bike lane and a, and a wider sidewalks or a wider median strip. Median strip may have some uh, green on it to absorb rainwater, sort of a green infrastructure kind of thing. So even around here we're seeing that happen and it's always interesting. You say, oh my god, we're going to go from two lanes to one, it's going to be congestion and inevitably when you start driving on those roads or, or let alone walking, biking or whatever, you realize that it all makes sense that traffic did not need to zoom down Lakeshore Avenue quite as, as quickly as it used to and uh, people still seem to get from hither to yon and there's more space for bikes and people and animals and everything else. So. Uh, this is a great proving ground in some ways for what I think is going to be more widespread in, in the U.S. as it, as you said, it has become in Europe. And while we're on the topic of development and sort of place-based sustainability, I wanted to follow up on one thread from last week in Hawaii, which was this idea of selling tourists on sustainability. Um, so let's take Hawaii as an example, since we happen to know a lot about it after the last few weeks. Um, last year alone, the island state, which has about 1.4 million full-time residents, saw something like 8.9 million visitors come through um, over the course of 2016, which is was a record number. That's an increase of 3% from 2015 and was good for netting about $15 billion in tourism spending. So obviously that's a huge driver of the economy in Hawaii, but as folks like the CEO of Hawaiian Airlines and a few other executives we had gathered that are very much focused on sustainability within Hawaii's tourism sector pointed out, the question is sort of how that foot traffic spending patterns and sort of this concern that tourists in general are, are spending less money per person will play out over the long term in a state that's targeting a very aggressive transition of its energy infrastructure. We know that it's already complicated to change the way you power a place, but let alone you, you don't want sort of tourists to, to see the, the quirks that can go on, the kinks that can happen in that process. Um, so I think this is a, a conversation that is definitely going to be sort of front and center as Hawaii moves towards its 2045 100% clean energy goal. And of course, there's it's not just technology. There's a lot of cultural issues, and we talked about some of that last week. Uh, but that uh, and that's not unique to Hawaii. Those are going to be found in every community, whether it's your old hometown of Santa Cruz, California, which is a beach town or Hawaii or anywhere else in the South Pacific or pretty much anywhere that, that attracts tourists is how development affects the locals, um, in, in particularly if they're indigenous cultures. Uh, in Hawaii, one of the issues is as, as the coastal areas get built up, 
the development starts getting pushed more and more inland towards the mountainous areas, which is where a lot of the, the, the tribes uh, and, and local cultures are, are centered these days, and they keep, keep getting driven further and further away or further and further inland. Um, and that's not sustainable. At some point, they run out of places to move to and run out of places to develop. Um, and, and this all goes into you know, how you think about sustainability in general and what is the responsibility of the tourism industry uh, to, to be thinking about these things uh, and to be making sure that they are you know, totally caring for the creation and caring for the, the things that are bringing tourists there in the first place. We had at Verge last week a sustainable tourism summit, uh, the first time we'd done that, and one of the few sustainable tourism summits that seemed to ever been held. And in fact, I want to get uh, Shauna Rappaport uh, from our team on the show maybe next week to talk a little bit about some of the outcomes of that. Uh, she co-facilitated and organized that event. And so, uh, and then that brought together just a, a cross-section of not, of the tourism industry, not just from Hawaii, but beyond airlines, hotels, rental car companies, tourism operators, things like that, in terms of how, what are some of the pressures, what are some of the plans, how do what they're doing sync up with what the state is doing with energy and other sustainability initiatives. So this is a, a great topic. It's not a new topic, but it's one that I think is beginning to come to the fore and possibly driven by clean energy mandates, certainly driven by the prospects that climate change could affect, if not wipe out some of these islands and, and other tourist spots, Miami Beach, for example, uh, in the not too distant future. That's definitely the tension. And we did hear from Hawaiian Airlines president and CEO, Mark Dunkerley, on this quest to find balance between sustainable development and growth and tourism. So here were some of his thoughts. How do we find balance? Is I think a really key question, and I think it it starts by recognizing some truisms, uh, and some truisms are sometimes a little hard to swallow. Um, But truism number one is that uh, from an economic perspective, people are not prepared to see their standard of living gradually erode. Um, In this community, that means that tourism has to grow. It has to grow because the contribution of each individual tourist in real terms, not nominal terms, we talk a lot about nominal terms, but in real terms is declining. And it will continue to decline because uh, as things like education and healthcare take up a bigger share of people's wallets, um, other things like the cost of your iPhone, uh, you know, the cost of clothing, uh, and the cost of travel come down. Um, so the contribution of each individual tourist to our island economy is declining. Tourism is and will remain uh, the dominant um, source of people's livelihoods um, here in the state, and so it goes, uh, it should be self-evident that in order to keep uh, a level of economic prosperity that has people in Hawaii not falling behind uh, other places we need more tourists. That, on the face of it, um, is a truism which seems to run counter to the interests and the need to have environmental sustainability and, frankly, cultural sustainability in sustaining our way of life. The way that you square these two seemingly opposed objectives, in our view, 
uh, is by one, acknowledging that they are altruisms, and two, by sitting down and planning for the future. Uh, and planning is something which in our community we've done next to nothing uh, about uh, for generations, frankly. Um, and uh, it is that process that, that we are participants in, 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 in starting an important conversation uh, around the community. So let's now turn to everybody's favorite phone company, Apple. Um, <laughs> well, you know, that's their half their business. It's their, I, I'm looking at my Macintosh right now, and my iPad isn't too far away. So With my it, iPhone next to it. Yeah, exactly. So, but they are, you know, primarily a phone company in so many ways now, and a content company, and so many other things. But uh, the story here that is, is one that Heather Clancy wrote about how Apple is moving its supply chain towards clean energy. Apple, as we know, has talked about numerous times, has committed to 100% renewable energy and is, is getting there pretty close, I think. Um, uh, but now they're, they're bringing in some of their big, big suppliers like a company called J-Bill, a Florida company that's uh, one of the largest contract manufacturing firms in the world. They make products for hundreds and hundreds of, of, of companies and the things that we buy are often manufactured at a J-Bill factory. And J-Bill committed to running all of its Apple-related operations in China on renewable energy by, the, uh, by 2018. And that's a significant commitment. It's about a billion kilowatt hours a year. Yeah, and in terms of the context here, Apple two years ago embarked on this plan to help its biggest supplier switch to clean energy. And as Heather reports, as of June, they've signed up eight suppliers to actually commit to, to following through on that. Um, so as, as you alluded to the case with J-Bill, uh, this isn't just a domestic issue. Uh, a lot of this effort focuses on China and big international manufacturing markets. Um, so I think seeing how they're able to incentivize suppliers and sort of get people lined up behind this goal is, is definitely instructive for other large players as well. Yeah, and, uh, and some of the other uh, factories and suppliers that are upstream from Jabil um, or, and from Apple are also getting in on the act. There's a glass maker called Beale Crystal Manufactor Manufactory. Uh, in China is, is, is also pushing for 100% clean power, and um, it had contracted to cover about half of that load so far, and it's going to continue. And then there's a, a company called Lens One Technology and a die-cast specialist called Catcher Technology. Um, so this is really interesting and in, in, in looking at at how a company that itself has you know, done the, I guess, the easier thing with its own facilities uh, and operations and and data centers is now saying, well, this doesn't really make sense until we can really uh, commit to this or or get our, our upstream manufacturers. Since for most companies, that's where uh, about eighty percent of its footprint is, or uh, actually, I think in Apple, it's seventy-seven percent. So same ballpark. This is a, a significant operation, and we'll be looking more into how Apple and other companies are continuing to push sustainability upstream. This episode is sponsored by NRG, where sustainability takes many forms. 
from renewable approaches to reliable backup generation to cost-saving demand response programs. For more information, please visit nrg.com greenbiz. So today, June 30th, 2017, marks the day that Peter Seligman, who co-founded Conservation International 30 years ago in 1987 and has served as its CEO ever since, is stepping down from that role and handing the reins to a new generation of actually three leaders within the company, although he's going to remain as chairman. And I think this was a really interesting moment uh, just to step back and uh, an opportunity for me to delve into my occasional series called Exit Interview, where I talk to uh, profile veteran sustainability executives from the public sector, private sector, and nonprofit sector who are recently or on their way uh, to leaving their job after many, many years. And so I did a conversation uh, with, um, with Peter Seligman um, uh, not too long ago to talk a little bit about his journey. Interesting timing because I know Conservation International has been sort of front and center in some really interesting uh, like social media campaigns, really experimenting with the way environmental messages are communicated. So what did you guys talk about in terms of the evolution of the organization? Well, we certainly looked at uh, how CI has changed um, uh, since he co-founded it in 1987. And one of the interesting parts of it is that it, it actually had come full circle, that they had the original idea of, of Conservation International was to connect the idea that people and nature are part of the same thing. And and one is not separate from the other. And um, over time, they sort of lost sight of that, and they began to focus on biodiversity and, and sort of lose the human side of that. But over time, they found that that got back to that original inspiration and, and changed their mission to focus on the well-being of people. So how nature helps the well-being of people and communities and, and, and countries and, and such. So that's become their focus and uh, once again and and that was really interesting and and so part of that is well how you know how do you think about it how do you talk about it and one of the things that peter talked about i'll play a little clip now from our from our interview is that bringing the social questions into this has become you know part and parcel of what the environmental community needs to be doing I think that we're seeing an important merger of social movements, human rights movements, environmental movements that is very, very strong. I mean, you can't deal with oceans now and fisheries now just thinking about environmental sustainability. I mean, you have to really address kind of the social inequities, the slavery, the inequitable distribution of wealth, the you know, overfishing by foreign fleets and the impact on local communities. You know, that's becoming an important, that social set of really essential questions about equity and equality and human rights is becoming really mixed in with uh, the protection of nature. And I think that what's really powerful is that when you combine that kind of ecological foundation with a social fabric foundation, and you put that in social media, that's a very, very powerful catalytic force to transform the way businesses and governments operate. And it's kind of a blend of the grassroots connecting to kind of a global framework from the UN and other entities that is really creating the framework and the pressure for the private sector and the governmental sectors 
nation by nation, state by state, to redesign how they deal with nature and how they deal with the resources that come from nature. I think this is a really big moment, a pivotal moment for all this to accelerate. That's pretty fascinating. But I also think about it in terms of sort of the context of how the broader environmental conversation has changed. Obviously, there's been a lot of talk about sustainable development and the global picture with the Paris Agreement of late. But did you guys sort of delve into his perspective on on how the conversation and messaging has sort of evolved over the years? Well, that's a lot of what uh, Peter's been focusing on. In fact, a few years ago, uh, Conservation International uh, hired Lee Clow, who was one of the gurus of communications and branding for Steve Jobs and, and at Apple, and um, and asked them all, how do we get across this simple concept that humanity needs nature to thrive? And they came out with this series uh, called Nature is Speaking, um, and we'll link to that uh, on the on the webcast page. But it's a it's this great series of one and two minute nature actually talking. So you've got Reese Witherspoon and Liam Neeson, Julia Roberts, Harrison Ford, Kevin Spacey, Penelope Cruz, Robert Redford, and others, you know, being, you know, Liam Neeson is ice, Reese Witherspoon is home, Joan Chen is sky, um, uh, Ian Summerhalder is coral reef, Harrison Ford is one of my favorite ones, is the ocean. He, he voices the ocean. Uh, and, and, and Julia Roberts is Mother Nature, and Edward Norton is the soil. These are really interesting to, to listen to, and I think it's a great uh, way to connect with uh, you know, giving nature a voice and understanding how uh, you put together this idea that, that we're all part of this, and we, can't, we need nature uh, in some ways more than nature needs us. I remember, I can't, I'm not going to quote it exactly, but... Harrison Ford is the ocean. He's kind of angry in this little video and he, in his voice, and he says, we once covered the earth and we can do it again. You know, just you watch kind of thing and in a way that only Indiana Jones can growl. Uh, so that's become a really, a, a, I think, effective part. And, and the understanding, as, as Peter talks about, that we need to use language that relates to people's concerns and those concerns often are not saving the earth that we need to be able to do. Otherwise, we're going to continue to be talking to the same small slice of the world that already agrees with us. Here's what he had to say. We need to use language that people understand, to use language that actually relates to their concerns. You know, I say often to the people that I work with that what we say is not as important as what other people hear. And we have to think about jobs and health, the health of a family, the health of a child, the health of a community, and how it is impacted by um, the conservation of nature, why it's they're so linked to the environment. And we clearly, as a movement, have not done that effectively. And I think that that's what we need to do. I mean, when we start talking about the need for, I had this conversation with some people, some scientists the other day, who were talking to me about the need for more protected areas. I said, I agree, we need more protected areas, but they can't be described as protected areas. They have to be understood as they're reservoirs of essential services, of, of natural capital, whatever the, whatever the right term is. They have to be described and understood to be really essential for the health of people and for their livelihoods and their children. And if we don't make that our paramount entry point, 
we are not going to be able to secure nature for the well-being of humanity. It will be things that are put into protected areas will be seen as putting your, you know, it's like having a pantry. It's there until I need it, and then I can open the door and take what I not what I want. So our communications has got to be our communications and our actions have to really focus on helping communities, helping families. We have to just make an effort to get out of our own siloed thinking, and that just takes being awake. Because I think that all of us have a responsibility to beat that drum. You know, we can't talk to ourselves. I mean, I don't. I have never made alliances with like-minded organizations my priority. I've always tried to focus on uh, how do you make the tent bigger? How do you make it inclusive? How do you work with corporations and with with uh, governments? And, and how do you engage the different communities, human rights community, the development community? If we don't do that, we're always going to have the are very comfortable with the 15 or 20 percent of the people in the world that agree with us and will always be a vast minority. So first of all, congratulations to, to Peter Seligman on 30 great years. I also encourage you to, and we'll post it uh, on the website, um, the interview that I did at GreenBiz 17 uh, with Peter and his daughter, Leah Seligman, uh, who was formerly the chief sustainability officer at NRG Energy and is now running the climate program at the B team. Uh, first time that uh, uh, father-daughter uh, combination had been on stage together uh, and talked a little bit about the role of family and 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 how they, they've inspired each other. So that's another great piece of this legacy that, that Peter Seligman leaves behind. One theme that wove through the Verge Hawaii conference last week was being in the same canoe or this idea of working towards steering in the direction of a central renewable energy goal in Hawaii's case, going 100% renewable in the electricity sector by 2045. Citizens are on board with the goal. In November 2016, voters in Honolulu approved a charter that established an Office of Climate Change, Sustainability and Resiliency headed by Chief Resilience Officer Josh Stambro. This is an outgrowth of a trend we're seeing in cities around the world, from San Francisco to New Orleans to mega cities in Asia and beyond. Uh, lucky for us, our associate editor, Anya Hollemeiser, caught up with Josh Stambro of Honolulu at the Verge Hawaii last week. How's it going, Anya? Great to be back on the podcast, Lauren. I'm doing well. So um, I had the opportunity to chat with Josh Stambro last week. And one of the things that we spoke about was his unique role. So there's not much precedent in general for the role of chief resilience officer. And it seems fitting, though, um, for a time when there's so much changing for companies and cities, new challenges, new opportunities and technology, mobility, renewable energy, equity. And then, of course, on top of that, every city landscape is unique, as you mentioned. And while Hawaii's culture and leadership is rooted in tradition, um, it also needs to look ahead towards building resilience, um, staying ahead of the new technology, the new challenges, and working towards a preferred condition, um, as cultural sustainability planner Ramsey Tom said last week. So in this case, um, in Josh Stambro's case, he's only been on the job for four weeks. Um, it can be beneficial to have a fresh perspective on what a city needs to adapt and to move forward. 
And here's what Josh um, said about what we should know about Hawaii's resilience strategy. Well, I mean, I think we're really lucky that in, you know, on Oahu, which is the island we're on, and in the city and county of Honolulu, people recognize that there are direct immediate threats from climate change right now. And so last November, um, they passed uh, a city charter, charter ordinance that basically established this Office of Climate Change, Sustainability, and Resiliency. Um, so this office is dedicated, it'll be there forever because it's in the city constitution now. Um, to really address the threats that we see from climate change. I mean, you can see it today, uh, the king tides that are out there, we've got sort of a, a sea level right now that you can look out and see what the average um, level will be a couple decades out. It's also interesting because resilience is sort of this abstract academic-y word in some ways, and it can be a tricky thing to measure. So I'm curious in Honolulu's case, what are the metrics that the city is looking at to gauge the success of these resilience efforts? So first there is the goal that was set by all of Hawaii to reach 100% renewable energy in the electricity sector by 2045. There's also another set of metrics called the Aloha Plus Challenge, which is a statewide commitment to a few sustainability targets by 2030. Those include energy, local food production, um, natural resource management, waste reduction. So some things that are common to um, all cities, resilient strategies, but also uh, local food production and energy, which is important for Hawaii because of the amount uh, of energy and food that it imports. Um, but there are also some pretty unique challenges for Honolulu. And here's where uh, Josh said the rubber meets the road for him. Well, so we're going to figure that out. I think for each city has its own goals. Um, but again, here in Hawaii, we've got a great um, collaboration around the Aloha Plus Challenge. And that collaboration includes the state, um, the governor has signed off, all four county mayors, the Office of Hawaiian Affairs, and the University of Hawaii. So all the leaders of those entities across the state have essentially pledged to reach certain benchmarks by 2030 that make us more sustainable and resilient. And so that's what we're going to be organizing around in the beginning, is making sure that we're at least meeting our obligations under the Aloha Plus Challenge that are aspirational obligations around natural resources, energy, renewable energy goals. And then, you know, there's a, a number of other uh, elements to Aloha Plus that are going to help frame the overall work that we do. And really where the rubber meets the road in all of these cases is at the city and county level. Um, where you make day-to-day -day operations decisions and infrastructure decisions. And we hope that when we make those decisions, we're actually aligning with the overall goals around the 2030 Aloha Plus Challenge. So in all of these pursuits, it seems like there's a balance between sort of planning ahead for resiliency, but also wanting to stay nimble and adapt to things as they come. How do you sort of navigate that dynamic um, in Honolulu, from what you understand? What's helpful here is that Stan Rowe brings his background in sustainability um, to the table. So this is a new government job for him. But in the past, he served as program director for the Hawaii Community Foundation, um, where he led some freshwater initiatives and community restoration partnerships. So that said, he has new challenges to face in this new government role. And he told me a little bit about utilizing all of the tools in this tech tool belt especially to deal with resilience challenges around climate. I, mean, I think the mantra that we've adopted is really, in order to protect and preserve the things we love about Hawaii, ironically, we're gonna have to change and change rapidly. So the more that we sort of um, dig in and try to resist change, 
the more we get toppled and change happens despite our best efforts. So um, we're looking at ways that we can kind of adapt and change and steer and guide the changes that are inevitably going to happen. All the 21st century challenges around climate change impacts, um, rapidly evolving technology, automation, um, interconnection with the global economy. We need to sort of make sure that we embrace and be nimble about changing um, ourselves so that we can direct those things into ways that help really help protect the best things about Hawaii, which are our community here, which is a really tight-knit, strong culture and community. And actually, that's the key piece for resilience in terms of how we envision resilience is really, is our community interconnected? Are we tight? Are we able to um, help each other when there is a shocker or long-term stresses to the city? Um, and if we can protect that cohesion, that community cohesion, um, you know, that's really going to set us up for success no matter what stresses are, are thrown our way. How does Hawaii then sort of think about collaboration and sharing knowledge with other cities who have a similar CRO role? Honolulu is one of the founding members of the 100 Resilient Cities Foundation, uh, Rockefeller Foundation uh, grant, which is a $164 million fund to help cities around the world bounce back from uh, catastrophic events like hurricanes and floods, natural disasters. And slower moving stresses, things like water shortages, dealing with unemployment and inequality, things you really have to think through. And here is uh, Stanbro speaking about what it truly means in this case to be a global citizen and share knowledge, best practices, to stay ahead of these challenges uh, along with other cities around the world. Well, I think, I mean, we are the sort of test bed for this in a lot of ways, right? I mean, we have a very small grid. We're not able to lean on folks from um, outside or neighboring states to bring it in. So, you know, if we can figure it out here um, and get the engineering right, I mean, I think anybody can do it. And really, that's why there's a lot of attention on Hawaii. I think that's why the Verge Conference is here um, and trying to figure out, you know, how, did, how are we doing it? Um, and making sure that our utilities and everyone else is changing and adapting to, to try to get there. Um, and then really, I mean, I think there's this broader perspective of, you know, what sort of place is Hawaii? With our biggest economy driver is tourism. Um, how do we make sure that there's a nest of sustainability, that we're a sustainable society so that people feel good about coming to Hawaii and when they do come to Hawaii, that they learn about how um, these islands can serve as a model for sustainability around the planet. We're not there yet. Um, we often talk about how we're sort of on the edge, but it doesn't mean necessarily that we're um, leading in, in a lot of key measures. We're learning a lot from people here um, about other practices that we need to be adopting and making sure that we're headed for. And finally, you mentioned the 2045 goal that Hawaii state legislature has set, but how does Stanboro specifically think uh, Hawaii should be acting or what sorts of initiatives should they be embarking on to ensure that they actually reach this objective? So going back to the canoe metaphor, staying in the same canoe, it takes buy-in and commitment from many stakeholders, including the government, including utilities, including citizens as well. And what's really interesting about his role is that in 2016, the citizens of Honolulu actually voted to establish the charter that created the resilience role. And uh, here's what Josh said about staying true to the climate commitment goals and as well as the population's needs. Because Hawaii is Hawaii, we're um, a culture and, and people that are close to the land and really have sort of our, um, you know, our fingers on the, on the cords and feeling what's going on with the ocean and, and with uh, the land around us. So I think there is this natural support and buy-in. They know what's happening around climate change. 
there was a landslide sort of victory around um, this office being established. Um, but to get to 2045, you also need public support to you know, make some changes, I think, um, over, over time. Uh, we've got a lot of momentum to get there. I think we're already, on this island anyways, uh, we're at over 20% renewable energy. But to get to 100%, um, it's the first 20% is easy. The last 80% is going to be increasingly harder. All right. Well, thank you, Anya Holomizer, for the thorough rundown. We will be sure to stay up to date on what Honolulu and cities around the world are doing when it comes to resilience. Thanks, Lauren. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. As always, go to greenbiz.com slash 350 and you'll find more about the organization, the stories, events, videos, and other things that we've mentioned in this episode. Thanks, as always, to podcast director Stephanie Joyce. Send us an email about 350 at greenbiz.com. We always love to hear your comments and ideas. And we'll be back here next week for another edition of Green Biz 350. From all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Have a safe Independence Day weekend, and thanks for listening. This episode is sponsored by NRG, where the catalyst for an innovative energy solution is often a formidable challenge. From cost savings to reliability to sustainability, a real-world assessment is an ideal tool for moving forward. For more information, please visit nrg.com greenbiz.